You're listening to Race Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. With me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And me, Kalia Harris. And me, Naomi Isaac. This week, we cover the Reefer Revolution, part two. I'm from the Hello, my name is Michael Millions, and in April 2015, I had a major run-in with the law over marijuana. This was just a typical day at my space. I had a bunch of friends over, some family, just just hanging out like we normally do, Um, kicking back. (laughs) Um, I was a bit tired from the day. I decided to go upstairs, grab a shower, leave everybody downstairs. And when I got out the shower, um, I got myself dressed, and but I decided to, like, lay down for a second, like, just to, you know, I guess revile myself for a moment. Shortly after that, I heard a knock at the door. It was the police. They were there because a guest of mine had uh, parked in front of a hydrant just in front of my home. And the police was trying to reach out to the person who parked there before he put a ticket on the car and figured he'd check the homes close by to see if he could reach out to the individual to move their car. When he opened my door, he smelled marijuana. He didn't allow the door to shut. Instead, he proceeded, you know, to, to actually enter the home due to probable cause. No one in the home was smoking at the moment, so there was no visible smoke. But I guess, you know, just the odor in the air and just the sheer amount of marijuana that was in the, in my home at the time, you know, it was it was it was pretty hard to mask the scent. I had several homies in the room. I knew it wasn't a great thing. Um and we were probably in a bit of trouble if they had found what was in the home. Not too long after that, more backup police came. It was about, it seemed like eight or nine different policemen. Um, they, they handcuffed one of my homies in my living room and detained the rest of us in, our, in, in the dining room and questioned me down, you know, about what was going on in my home. Um, they began to search downstairs, each of us individually. They searched every nook and cranny downstairs. They went upstairs, searched each of the rooms, um, and they even went into my attic um, to search. Um, they, you know, of course, the law came in and did a thorough search. They found what they found, and they charged me. A few days later, I reached out to a lawyer, um, one of the top drug defender lawyers in the in the in the region um, or in the city, and um, had a meeting with him. We discussed terms of payment, but more importantly, we discussed um, the nature of my case, not the nature of oh wow, another person just got caught with um, an illegal drug, but 
we 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 discussed the color of my skin and how that would make fighting this case a bit more difficult. You see, people of color are convicted of crimes many more times over white people. And um, we're sent to jail or we pay more fines. It was just a lot that he was actually trying to explain to me. I don't think I really was listening, but, you know, it took some time to sink in. But what he was just trying to tell me was, yo, as a black man, you just got yourself in a lot of trouble. I fought that case for like a year, and they lessened my felony charges to misdemeanor, and I was able to go home. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for many other people I saw in those courtrooms over the course of that year. I saw people of color with very similar charges to mine. I saw white people with similar charges leave the courtroom that same day with their cases dismissed. I mean, just sitting there, you could see the disproportion in the punishment um, between white people and black people. I thought that was wild. That was a story from local hip hop legend, Michael Millions. We'll be hearing more stories of black people and marijuana today on our episode, Reefer Revolution. You're listening to Race Capital on the week of Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. Let's dive right into the Race Capital reframe with local news. This week in the eviction watch, there are 113 unlawful detainers being heard in the courts. Monday, the court was closed, and today is the highest day on the books, with 56 unlawful detainers going through the courts. A reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant. Well, the Hopewell Police Department is facing criticism after the mother of a recently deceased police informant died due to a fentanyl-laced heroin overdose back in July 2018. Donna Watson says that her son, Troy Hewitt, purchased the substances while undercover for Hopewell PD. The complaint filed by Hewitt's mother claims that Hopewell law enforcement, as well as the city's Commonwealth's attorney, were aware that her son struggled with an opiate addiction. The wrongful death complaint alleges that law enforcement enlisted Hewitt as an informant despite having knowledge of his addiction. The lawsuit also claims that Hopewell PD threatened Hewitt, who was on probation at the time of his death, with the threat of arrest or bond revocation in order to manipulate him into buying opiates as a police informant. That is wild and also wildly unsurprising. Here we go again. Well, Delegate Sam Russell from Roanoke, Virginia, has recently announced that he'll be running for the Democratic Lieutenant Governor nomination, as well as his current House seat. Other contenders for the role include Delegate Hala Ayala, Delegate Elizabeth Guzman, Delegate Mark Levine, Paul Goldman, a former chairman of Virginia Democratic Party and Richmond legend, as well as Norfolk Councilwoman Andrea McClellan, Sean Perryman, the former president of the Fairfax County NAACP, and Xavier Warren, a small business owner and HBCU grad. The Democrats will select a nominee on June the 8th. And this is important information to know because many of these people declared to run for these statewide seats before they realized that they might have to give up their current seat. So it's important to know that these folks that are running, we might not see them back if they don't make it statewide. And just like the governor's race, it's everybody, their mama, cousin, auntie, sibling running for lieutenant governor. Girl, I didn't know when I was gonna get to the end of that list. 
Okay, keep moving on. Tobacco giant Altria has recently registered to lobby on cannabis legalization here in the Commonwealth. No one's surprised. The Henrico-based company has already invested in the Canadian recreational marijuana industry. However, this would make it the first tobacco company on both the state and the federal levels to do so in the U.S. Imagine that big corporate Virginia making history right here. That sounds like the big tobacco state. Last week, advocates held a rally demanding free, fair, and automatic expungements for those who have been formally incarcerated. Felony convictions can create barriers to housing, employment, social services, and citizenship status. Presently, there is no formal process in Virginia to expunge past convictions. That's right. You heard it, y'all. We don't have an expungement process in Virginia. Instead, those seeking to clean their records must go through an expensive and lengthy petition process. While both the House and Senate have passed bills to reform the expungement process, advocates are saying both bills leave room for disparities and unintended consequences. The truth is, they just don't go far enough, y'all. And if we see any win, it's that we have some type of expungement in Virginia. Even if it doesn't reach a lot of people, I guess the win that we're all looking for is to say, hey, somebody can get expunged in Virginia. I just hate that, you know, these lawmakers, they constantly ask the question, well, how far is too far? And it's like nothing that you ever do will be too far if you're freeing people, if you're allowing them to have access to living their life freely with no obstacles to all these necessities in life. And it's it's just so crazy to me that they constantly bring up that question. Are we doing too much? The answer is no. Y'all are always doing too little. And just to mention expungement of marijuana really quickly, remember that prior to 2020, anything that over half of an ounce was a felony, y'all. And the only thing they're going to make automatic expungible is misdemeanors. So if you had over a half of an ounce in 2019, y'all, you had to petition for your expungement. And that means you may or may not get it. And for lawmakers that do not hesitate to create new laws to then have to go back and scrape the bottom of the barrel to redress the harms of racist enforcement of all these laws. It's just, it's hard to watch them argue about it. And it's even harder to explain that to people who aren't paying attention, right? That these folks are actually finding arguments to create more obstacles. Like, I feel like they make up the arguments, y'all. Also, they place these different judgments on different quote-unquote crimes. And that already right there is where the disparity is coming from. You know, that's what's the holdup because they want to figure out which crimes are admissible and forgivable and which crimes aren't. And that's like not what we say when we say that we want to free people and when we actually want to go through the processes of allowing people to be reincorporated in society. We need to see more. And in other news out of the legislature, in an attempt to address a statewide teacher shortage, state senators Siobhan Donovan and you guessed it, Chap Peterson, with his bow tie, are urging Governor Northam to establish a teacher reserve corps. Though the exact details of the proposal have yet to be carved out, VPM has reported that the reserve would consist of former educators, military veterans, students pursuing a career in education, and those with out-of-state teaching licenses. And the volunteer program would be largely unpaid and short-term. Are you all racing to send your kids into classrooms with volunteers? I don't know. Sounds like we could just pay the teachers a fair wage and fund our schools and maybe we wouldn't have these issues. 
Also, where are these volunteer teachers going to go? Which schools are they going to be in? I just want to know where where the volunteers are going to go, because we know they're going to go to underfunded, already underprivileged uh, school systems. And let's just go ahead and devalue the teachers pay now, right? If you can get free teachers, then what the world are all these teachers asking for a raise for? I mean, this is literally how we devalue how we pay teachers. We know that teachers are normally women. We know that this pandemic has put women out of work. We know that now this is another way to increase the pay gap. So nah, I got questions too, Nomi. And that says nothing of privatization of education and what that will mean in this digital era. In other local news, the Stony administration is continuing their quest to, quote, reimagine public safety, unquote, here in the city. Next Monday, the mayor will be introducing his new equity agenda, which includes proposals from, you guessed it, Chief of Police Gerald Smith. Some of the proposed changes to RPD include establishing a 15-person committee made up of community members who will work to facilitate conversation between officers and the public, a de-escalation award for officers who successfully defuse by Violent situations and business cards that officers will be able to give to residents who are looking to file a complaint or a compliment. <laughs> it's hard not to laugh. It's hard not to laugh. I'm Whenever deaf. it comes to addressing police violence, all they up and do is make another committee, make another task force that ain't nobody asked for. Uh, just all these steps to actually hindering the process of uh, accountability. Like, ain't nobody want no business card. I want them fired. I'm hearing more budget, business cards, awards. We do not need to give the cops more money. We have made it so clear that they have an abundance of it and they just don't know how to spend it. So we need to take some of that away and defund them. And in Henrico, high-ranking KKK member Harry Rogers was sentenced to nearly four years in jail for assaulting protesters with his vehicle last summer during the uprising for Black Lives. Y'all may remember that we covered that story on our episode entitled Cops and Klan go hand in hand. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Rogers appealed a lower court's convictions in exchange for having three felonies and an additional misdemeanor count for assault dropped. He was sentenced last week where he received three years and eight months in jail, which is over a year less than the maximum sentence he was facing. The judge, Circuit Judge L.A. Harris, said that he wasn't sentencing Rogers because of his ties to the KKK or his beliefs, but rather his actions that day based on those beliefs. I mean, oh no, but it's... I got the meme. You know the calculations mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One like... plus one is actually equals two in this situation, but I don't know because he got to four and. Uh... It's just not making sense. Goes to show that the judges are also complicit in the violence of white supremacy every single day. I also just want to say as a clinical social worker, I find it highly offensive that you are disconnecting someone's beliefs from their actions. Like they are not cognitively tied. Like we don't have whole cognitive behavioral therapy theories out this mother. So something Kalia was saying earlier about how, you know, they can't even just name the violence. They can't even give us the respect or the acknowledgement of the violence. Yeah, like call it what it is. It's a it's a hate crime. And us as abolitionists, we see this as it is possible for these judges to hand down light sentences. It just never happens to people that look like us. Well, moving on to national news, we'll kick it off with our COVID watch. So nationally, the numbers are looking pretty high, but vaccinations are on the rise. We have had 27.5 million total cases of COVID in the United States, 55.2 million total vaccines, and 
485,070 total deaths across the country. So we're getting really close to a half a million deaths in the United States. In Virginia, we have had 553,000 total cases. And y'all, we have climbed in the death rates to 7,037 total deaths in Virginia. The good news is that over a million people have been vaccinated in the state with at least one dose of the vaccine. So vaccinations are on the rise, but it is still spreading. And per Melanor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Virginia Department of Health's vaccination registration website launched yesterday with some problems. While the department expected the site's unveiling to be a slow start, community members and Melanor have noted that the Spanish language version of the form on the site was provided by Google Translate. And so the translations were workable, but certainly not adequate. So for anyone that speaks Spanish, first name was like nombre de pia, which just doesn't quite translate the way that it should. And it's just hard for someone who you know, speak Spanish, no English, to go onto this website and not have proper translations. And so we've seen just a persistent problem with the Virginia Department of Health and their serious issues with language justice. And it's not a new issue. Like you said, it's been ongoing. People have been complaining about the lack of language accessibility for months, for months. And the budget is just so vast. It, it's like, how can we not take out the time to have an authentic, real live translator, you know, just look over the language. For one language, what if we expanded it to multiple? Like, come on, Virginia. Last Friday, the University of Virginia confirmed that there are cases of the UK coronavirus variant in the UVA community and emphasized the importance of preventative measures as positive cases of COVID-19 have increased both on and off grounds. Sounds like they should have closed the campus. Yes, they should have closed the campus. And UVA students, especially Black and Brown students, have been resisting this since UVA decided to open campus back up and allow students on grounds. And the YDSA at UVA has an abundance of demands out right now, such as the tuition freeze. And they've also been advocating for COVID protections for workers and students on campus. So we'll keep following the amazing work that's happening on grounds as these COVID cases rise. And please listen and support students as they are organizing against administrations that are requiring people to be on campus. Do not allow them to shape the narrative that this is just students' responsibility or a lack of responsibility on the students, rather, because at the end of the day, they have the ultimate decision whether or not they would open campus, and they decided to. One of the universities with the largest endowments, they could have paid people to stay home. And they want to raise tuition. Uh-uh, UVA. Well, y'all, last week, ProPublica reported that elders are not receiving equal treatment when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. While most states have moved to provide the vaccine to those 75 and older, research released by the Brookings Institute last summer revealed that Black people who die of COVID-19 are, on average, about 10 years younger than white victims of the disease. Health experts have warned that vaccinating based on age alone will lead to disparities, allowing white elders who are less at risk to be vaccinated than Black elders who are oftentimes more at risk of the virus. Yeah, that's going to cause a whole bunch of issues. So basically, our elders are at risk. 
The director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, is urging elected leadership to take more serious measures in order to maintain the spread of COVID-19, including tightening restrictions for air travel. This comes after health experts reported that 690 out of 699 COVID variant cases were UK strains. Walensky is suggesting that those traveling on flights be required to receive a negative COVID test before boarding planes. Seems very rational. However, Pete Buttigieg, who is serving as transportation secretary, gave the typical lukewarm answer we become accustomed to from Biden's administration, stating that the decision on new air travel restrictions will be guided by data, science, medicine, and that the CDC is still looking at all of its options. The least, the very least they could do with these variants going around. After three weeks of testimonies, a coalition of social justice advocates and law organizations are prepared to submit a report to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights that will detail the legacy of racist policing in the U.S. During the third week of hearing, the mother of Breonna Taylor, whose 26-year-old daughter was killed in her home by plainclothes officers in Louisville, Kentucky last March, testified before this commission. I hope someone listens to us. Although something tells me that the UN is not going to be the prince on the white horse to come in and lead us to liberation. So we're going to have to do that ourselves. That's on period. In other news, PepsiCo has announced that they will officially retire Aunt Jemima and rebrand the breakfast syrup as Pearl Milling Company. The change comes after the company faced condemnation for the racially insensitive logo during last year's protest movement. The descendants of Nancy Green, the former enslaved Black woman and renowned cook that the brand and its recipe are based on, filed a lawsuit against Quaker Oats and PepsiCo back in 2014, but the case was dismissed in court. The family has expressed outrage over PepsiCo's decision to erase the legacy of Nancy Green while continuing to profit off her recipe. They didn't give these people no money. None. Not a single cent. This is giving Henrietta Lacks, it's giving, not giving people the coins that they deserve for the legacy that they have. All these uh, corporations are very content, persistent on just doing these symbolic gestures. But it's like, if you're not redistributing the money, like that's the actual violence there is that you profited off of this woman, stole her recipe or used her recipe to make a legacy for yourself and have not redistributed any of that money back to the family. Let's not forget the power of marketing, right? It's not just this recipe. It's now this brand that has been created out of her likeness. And you're going to continue with the recipe that we've all fallen in love with. So nah. And y'all think y'all gonna sell it with this whack name, Pearl Milling Company. You know that people are coming for the recipe. <laughs> it's not given. Left on the shelf. It's, it's really not given what it's supposed to have gave. How do we go from Mama to Pearl? I'm trying to figure it out. They were like, oh, we're rebranding it with the history without the racial legacy. It's like, but the history of the company is based on a legacy of racism. So it's like, you can't separate the two just because you take the woman off the bottle. It's literally called erasure. That, that's what they're doing. Cool, cool, cool. All right. I'm gonna need them to run Aunt Jemima's family, her coins off this syrup. Mm-mm-mm. Well, y'all, last week, ICE deported at least 72 people to Haiti, including a two-month-old baby and 21 other children, even as the Biden administration claimed that it would halt deportations for the next 100 days. The children were deported to Haiti last Monday on two flights chartered by ICE from Laredo, Texas to the Haitian capital, Port au Prince. Obviously the Biden administration is still deporting black people. All I've heard is Jamaicans, Haitians, black folk. 
I think that's something that often gets pushed to the side, even though, you know, Black migrants have been speaking out about this for years, generations, about how Black migrants are often the most targeted when it comes to deportations overwhelmingly, specifically, like you said, Kalia, Haitians. Yeah, and they make up a lot of the people in detention centers. I think we talked about that on one of our previous episodes a little bit. Just reiterating the fact that immigration is a Black issue. And moving into international news, Democracy Now! reported last week that Colombian President Ivan Duque announced Venezuelan migrants and asylum seekers in Colombia will be granted protected status for up to 10 years. Venezuelans who arrived in Colombia before January 31st will be allowed to remain in the country for a decade under new rules. Holding protected resident status will also allow migrants to legally work and help them integrate into society. The United Nations estimates that approximately 5.4 million Venezuelans have fled their country amid the crippling economic crisis, threats of violence, and political instability that have led to a lack of basic goods and services for its residents. More than 1.7 million Venezuelans now live in neighboring Colombia, and of that, some 966,000 do not have legal status in the country, according to Colombia's migration authority. Free up them borders. Let's see it. And England. News has come out that people with learning disabilities are being told they will not be resuscitated should they con in England, news has come out that people with learning disabilities are being told that they will not be resuscitated should they contract COVID. This past December, the Care Quality Commission found out that inappropriate do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation or DNA CPR notices led to potentially avoidable deaths. DNA CPRs are usually made for people who are too frail to benefit from CPR, but MNCAP said some seem to have been issued for people simply because they had a learning disability. The CQC is due to publish a report on this practice within the next few weeks. Jesus. I'm just constantly, constantly overwhelmed with the way that disabled people are specifically being impacted by COVID-19 because there are no supports, you know, there, there are no supports really out there. There's only, you know, more, more ways for them to make sure that these people are disposed of. And this is eugenics, like to, you know, decide who gets to live and who doesn't. That's the definition. And we've heard stories here in the U.S. of people getting tested in nursing homes for weird mixes of the vaccine. And now we're hearing that people have actually lost their lives abroad because of this ableism that we have. And it's really deadly. In other international news, Democracy Now! has reported that Israel has halted the shipment of 2,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to the Gaza Strip. The vaccines were expected to be distributed to medical workers on the front lines. The 2 million people residing in the Gaza Strip have still yet to receive any vaccine. Meanwhile, a 95% drop in symptomatic coronavirus infections has been reported among the 600,000 Israelis who received the Pfizer vaccine. Settler colonialism is deadly and is killing our Palestinian siblings. Are y'all noticing how they're withholding the vaccine as like a weapon this all over? I don't know. I've just been kind of seeing that. Vaccine apartheid. Look, I don't remember where I read that about how they are really, again, who gets this and who doesn't and therefore who survives and who doesn't. But 
I've made this tweet as a joke, not a joke, but what's actually happening is a semi-like underground railroad of vaccine plans for when we know where one is, we're connecting our people, only our people and not connecting and not telling other folks, but that's how we have to function now. It's just... And they do this with other treatments on a regular basis when there's not coronavirus. You know, we have so many curable diseases out there that are not being solved because of what? Capitalism. And uh, I just hope that people are paying attention to that and not just necessarily thinking that this is just something that's happening with COVID vaccines, but realizing that it's happening with cancer, it's happening with measles, it's happening with so many sicknesses that they just withhold in, in like you said, enact medical apartheid. It's just part of the policy plan. I find it interesting that the stories we've been seeing the last few weeks have been Palestine, South Africa. So like sites of literal apartheid are also like these almost exacerbated sites of vaccine or medical apartheid. It's interesting, but concerning. In so-called Canada, Inuit hunters endured tough weather conditions during a week-long blockade of an iron ore mine in Nunavut. The action was an attempt to protect animals in the region from being harmed by the Baffalin Iron Mine's expansion into the nearby Mary River open pit, which Kikatoni communities say will displace already scarce wildlife, wildlife that their communities depend on for food. The iron mine has proposed a project that will allow the site to produce 12 million tons of ore each year, doubling its current capacity. The conflict has exacerbated calls among Inuit communities to establish their own sovereign governing bodies. People all across the globe are starting to realize that the only people that's going to get us free is us. And that's on it. That's it for this week's Reframe. This week on Race Capital, we are diving into Reefer Revolution Part 2. The Legalize It Right movement continues to work through the three R's of repeal, repair, and reparations. So let's break down where the bills are within the three R's, as well as where are they in the process of General Assembly. Repeal. Well, y'all, there is no repeal except for what Jennifer McClellan made sure was in the Senate version. The House version of legalization bill does not want to stop the harm until they can make a profit from the plant, which seems to be around 2024. In both bills, there is an open container law that would make it essentially illegal to possess weed in the car, allowing police to say they see a green leafy substance, search your car, and also because possession allows police to assume that you are intoxicated to now be considered driving under the influence. Well, there is no repeal for young people under the age of 21 either. Instead, they're increasing penalties, allowing for subsequent penalties to be felt by you-know-who, Black youth. In fact, this week the Legalize It Right team was able to foyer the numbers to prove what we warned the Virginia legislature about when they proposed the decrim, that the racial disparities would not be addressed and only true repeal of at least simple possession would give us a real start to ending the racist policing around marijuana. So let's get to repair. The House bill allows for automatic expungement of misdemeanors and the Senate allows for some automatic, but also the petition for expungements for felonies as well. There's still much to do to figure out these two bills to ensure that expungement, but more importantly, automatic and free expungement comes to the Commonwealth. Reparations. 
As of now, the legislators have not discussed the tax revenue allotment, but the advocates still demand that 70% of tax revenues be directed towards the Cannabis Equity Reinvestment Fund. There's still much to be worked out, and the definitions and disproportionately impacted areas over policing as well as the social equity applicant definition. Here, the House bill is much better situated as it bans vertical integration and does not allow for the employer to receive social equity benefits by simply hiring black people who have been impacted. So where are the bills now? The House and Senate versions of legalization have both been passed in their proposed chambers. They have now also been through crossover, where there was little to no hearing time spent on the bills. So whatever was done in the first round before crossover, that's pretty much where the bills stand before they go to conference. Conference is where the patron and another Democrat, because the Dems have the majority, and a Republican from each House and Senate meet in a private room to negotiate the components and come out with one bill. From there, advocates will review the bill and react accordingly. Remember that the bill also has to make it to the governor's desk. Well, he will probably have amendments and our work will continue. So if you're wondering what a win looks like for Virginia's equitable legalization, advocates are pushing the priorities of stopping the harm to legalize simple possession with no new crimes starting on July 1 of this year, 2021. We do need an equitable cannabis market, but let's be honest. What's this so-called legalization if we are still criminalizing black folks with old and or new marijuana crimes? Look y'all, there's more to talk about, more to do. So first up, you'll hear an interview with Valerie Slater from Rise for Youth, where she details out each bill and the new Warren youth that is proposed in the so-called legalization bill. So stay tuned. As we talk about legalization, there is a litmus test that we always use with any legalization bill across the country, how the bill and the language treats young people. And that is why we've invited Valerie Slater with Rise for Youth today to join us. Hello, Valerie. Kelsey, thank you so much for inviting me. Tell folks a little bit about your organization. Sure, sure. Rise for Youth, it stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments, because we believe that every space that impacts a child's life ought to be feeding that child's ability to dream, to grow, to thrive, and to realize their dreams that they would become realities from the criminal justice system to their education systems, their communities, even the places where they go to recreate to just have fun. Every space that touches a child's life ought to be invested in so that it's supportive and that it's filled with the ability for a child to achieve their absolute best. That's what we do at Rise for Youth. We make sure that every space indeed does fulfill that necessary, that very necessary duty. It is our duty to care for our children. And so that's what we do. The majority of our work is in the legislature because we're making sure that when bills come down, oftentimes the collateral consequences, they trickle down and they hurt our children. And we make sure that that doesn't happen. We also make sure that bills that are on the books that need to come off, we fight to make sure that those bills indeed get repealed, that we stop this over simplification of a child's life, that we stop treating them like many adults. They're not, they're complex and they have complex needs and we need to be addressing them. And so that's what we do at Rise for Youth. 
We make sure that children, they're included in every conversation and that their needs are met and that we don't skip over them and do things that would inadvertently harm them. That's right. And thank you so much for that introduction. And I will say that it was really the voices of the youth, the different activities where you put youth voices forward that has brought so much attention to your organization outside of the General Assembly, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if it's about them, then it ought to be accomplished by them. We, we, the adults, we make sure that they understand processes. We make sure that if we're sitting at a table, we have scooted over and given them space, or if necessary, we get all the way up and give them our seat. It is accomplished in concert with the young people that are living the life right now. They are indeed the future, bringing them up so that they understand every process, that they are at every table, and that their voices are the loudest in the room. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that there are complex issues and problems that our youth have to face. And many folks might have been surprised that Rise for Youth jumped in in 2020 to really have a place at the table for the decriminalization of marijuana that came about. Can you tell us a little bit about why you all thought that this was important for youth to have a voice in the decriminalization fight? Well, anytime we began looking at a substance that has been criminalized and how it is going to impact the different groups of people, we have to look at how it's going to impact children. Mm -hmm. And as we began to look at the decrim bill, they created whole new crimes just for kids. Mm -hmm. And we had to speak up. We already know that black and brown children, children who live in economically challenged uh, communities, they are the ones that bear the brunt of any criminalization of children. And here we are, this substance that has waged a war on black and brown communities. Even in the decrim, a carve out was made so that children could still feel the brunt and the heat of all of that wrath of of criminalization. It's almost as if they felt like, oh my goodness, we're losing a whole population that was feeding our criminal justice system. Mm. How are we going to ensure that we still have someone to do that? And they targeted our young people. We had to get in that fight. And you put it, you really put it so eloquently and just directly last year in the General Assembly of creating a new war on drugs on youth with these quote unquote decrim and quote unquote legalization laws. So when folks ask me a lot of times, well, Chelsea, what do you mean no new crimes? I thought marijuana was going to be legal. At the first place I point them are the new crimes on youth. And you were able and you all uh, were able to teach us so much last year about what type of new crimes were coming up about youth losing their driver's license, right? And this was in Mm -hmm. a a commonwealth that we just said, you're not going to lose your driver license for non-drivable offenses, but we're doing it to our youth. Mm -hmm. And so as we look at the legalization, before we talk about what the bills actually propose, Valerie, how would you all see legalization coming across, particularly for young people in a marijuana legalization bill? The dream would be if indeed a child someone under the age of 18, if they were found in possession of attempting to purchase or even using this particular plant, that we would take a good hard look at that child's surroundings. What's happening in this child's life that 
even though it's a plant, it is a mood altering, right? It is a mind altering substance. And why does a child feel the need to participate in its consumption? Right. Um, when, when we see children drinking alcohol, we recognize something's not right here. Something's wrong. And we immediately began to assess that child's environment and find what is triggering this child's thought that they need to use a substance that's going to alter, change their mind, their mood. That would be the ideal, is that we would immediately begin to assess and determine what needs to be put into place to support this child so that they are able to find healthy ways to deal with stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we going to intervene in cycles of trauma? Mm-hmm. How are we going to support this child, their family, in ways that are going to be building this child rather than further tearing this child down, further traumatizing this child and criminalizing this child when what we were really experiencing is a child's cry for help? That's the dream. That's the ideal. And and just talking about that process, it's like, well, To me, that means that certain institutions and certain people wouldn't be part of this process where traditionally they have been for youth. Mm -hmm. And and that means police officers, judges wouldn't be in your dream. Those wouldn't be the people making these decisions and assessments, right? They would not. They absolutely would not. At no point have we asked doctors to go and bear arms and pull folks over for uh, traffic violations or to intervene when uh, there is a terrorist attack. We've not asked doctors to go and to stand in that place. We've not asked psychologists to go and sit on the bench and rule uh, over matters of law. We have not asked therapists to uh, go and be in a detention center to go around and make sure that everyone is where they ought to be as a corrections officer. So why are we in turn asking judges, police officers, detention centers to take on the task of diagnosing children? Why are we asking them to take on the task of prescribing the right course of treatment? Why are we asking judges, police officers, and detention centers to take on the task of ensuring that appropriate set of services are in place to support a child who is experiencing traumas, who is experiencing all of the stressors and the different things that particular young people that find themselves in possession of or using this plant? All I did was just flip the jobs, right? All you did for folks that are listening for marijuana, what's being proposed right now for Virginia's quote unquote legalization as far as young people being impacted, Valerie? Mm. Oh my goodness. You know what? I am going to start with the Senate bill because it is the most atrocious. Okay. Um, you know, that, 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 that age group, 18 to 25, there are 18 to 20, 18 to 20. Young people, absolutely. We recognize that they are still developing, their brains are still developing. And so therefore they are a class of young folks who are still kept from legal usage, possession or purchase. In the Senate, a $250 civil penalty for a first offense. Wow. $250. And then if there is a second then it's a class three misdemeanor. Wow. And for a third, yeah. And then for a third or subsequent, it's a class two misdemeanor. I mean, we, we're just ramping it right up. We are making sure that we have an entire 
group that is ready to feed the criminal justice system. And now for the for the ones who are under before you go there, Valerie, just to remind people that the the age demographic that has the highest population of convictions and arrests are mm-hmm. the 18 to 25 year old. And right. the way that we are quote unquote legalizing it is the 18 to 20 right now would still be illegal. Those are college age students. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of conversation of, hey, there's a 21 year old maybe using or consuming with someone that's 19 in a, in a setting. So there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of good work happening with folks with Rise for Youth and legislators about these nuances as well to let everyone know and and really have a good grasp and contextualize who in the world is going to feel this the most because they were already Mm -hmm. feeling it even when it was illegal, right? And it's going to Mm -hmm. be illegal for them. Um, So just wanted to point that out a little bit. So tell us a little bit about- Under 18. Yeah. So for the 17 and younger, it's a $200 civil penalty. Where's 17, where are 17 year olds getting $200 from their parents? We're 15, 16 year olds. Where are they getting $200 from their parents? A 14 year old. It is outrageous that that civil penalty is $200. But then if there is a subsequent offense, a class three misdemeanor and an interruption of their driving privileges. So, I mean, they just threw every potential out there at the youngest and the most vulnerable. And that selective enforcement that we're all so aware is happening regularly. If anyone doubts selective enforcement, 47% of intakes that go into a court services unit, that's that first step towards a child being involved in the justice system. 47% of those intakes are white kids. 42% of those intakes are black kids. When we look at how many of those cases are actually eligible for diversion, it's upwards of 85%. How many are actually diverted? Only approximately 26 to 27%. But then when we look, yeah, when we look at at who ends up incarcerated, it's 68 to 70% Black kids and 25, 26% White kids. What happened? What happened? And not to mention even the population size of black kids versus white kids. Yeah, black, 20% of the population, 20%. How is it possible that they make up approximately 70% of those in the deepest end of our justice system? How is that possible? Selective enforcement. Well, selective enforcement, that's exactly right. And so when we already know that that's what's happening, How dare we allow for a system that is going to target children in particular for continued criminalization of what we are legalizing in our state? And then let's uh, just real quick, even before I go over to the House bill, what do we mean zero tolerance? That means expulsion. The school to prison pipeline is alive and well in Virginia and making sure that we continue to feed it. It's almost as if in the midst of our criminal justice reform, while we're at one end of the spectrum making things better, there are folks at the other end of the spectrum making sure that there is still a feeder system. We have got to stop this. We must stop this. 
we must stop this. And so when folks ask me, you know, what are my lines in the sand? And, you know, they usually want something, a, a really quick answer. And so I, I usually say a repeal since, but everyone has to understand that when we say repeal the prohibition, we're also understanding mm-hmm. we have to repeal the prohibition on youth. Yeah. Just the very idea that how can legal and offense mm. operate in the same bill? Right. In, in, with regard to the same substance. How is that even possible? Especially, you know? especially, especially when we know that Virginia, nowhere in the country, but since we're talking <laughs> about Virginia, has been able to fairly enforce any marijuana laws, period. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, last last year when we were talking decram, I know I took a long time when I was giving my statement, but I needed to lay out our history in this country. Mm. How we specifically targeted Black and Latinx communities. And when uh, marijuana made its way into white suburbs, all of a sudden, something that was earning folks felonies and and huge prison sentences came all the way down to misdemeanors. And how, you know, then we get presidents that decide, oh, we need to wage a war and, and private prisons and the war on drugs simultaneously pop off and black and brown folks are filling up prisons once again over this substance. And here we are again, here we are at this crossroads, at this pivotal moment when we in Virginia have the opportunity to do it right, where no one else has yet. And we are still looking at ways to continue to feed the prison industrial complex with our black and brown youth. Mm -hmm. The house, they have a $25 civil penalty for both classes, right? The the 18 to 20 year olds and for the 17 and youngers. It's Mm -hmm. a $25 civil penalty. But then uh, for 18 year old, 18 and older to 20, that second offense and subsequent offense, class three misdemeanor. There we go again. We have specifically criminalized this thing for these young people. And then for 17 and below, their driving privileges are impacted. And, you know, that you know, class three misdemeanor, I'm, I'm just trying to understand why they think criminalizing kids for drugs and young adults for drugs. I, I, I'm just not sure what they think they're going to gain by this, because what they're doing is actually shutting doors. Drug offenses are the kinds of things that keep kids out of federal Pell Grants. It keeps them out of public housing. It, it shuts so many doors. It opens the door to the criminal justice system and closes so many doors to a brighter future. And so you have to wonder, I don't wonder, I know, but I want to pose the question for the listeners. If you know that what you're doing is going to close the doors of opportunity, but open a door into criminal justice, what do you think the purpose of this uh, criminalizing uh, children and young adults, what do you think the reason we would do that when we're legalizing this, this plant? Why would we do that? (laughs) If we're going to lose an entire population that we have in our criminal justice system currently, we're going to lose the disenfranchisement that has happened to so many adults. We're going to lose parts of our our prison population that's given us that nice free labor. Hmm. So if we're going to lose that, are we perhaps supplementing and preparing and priming a whole new generation? Mm. to take their place? Is that what we're doing? I'm just asking questions. 
this country and our oldest legislative body here in Virginia um, mm-hmm. has a lot of experience of recriminalizing us, even with these new laws. And, right. and it's just part of our history. And if we are not here to be in resistance, then they will continue. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I've got to ask Valerie, do you all have a stance that as these bills go to conference, if they come out and they are still penalizing youth um, in these ways, what do you all say to these legalization bills? We say no. Yeah. No new crimes for kids. That is our hard line. No. Do not affect their future. Do not limit their possibilities. These bright minds that can reach the stars and beyond, literally. And you want to shut the door on black and brown kids, uh, economically challenged kids from having those opportunities while you open the door for big business to make more and more billions of dollars in an industry that you criminalize just for us? Mm. I say absolutely not. No. No. Thank you so much, Valerie, for that. This is not the legalization we need. That's not the justice that we need to our people that have been criminalized around the plant. And uh, marijuana was not something that was on the rise for youth agenda, y'all. This was just uh, the thing that they showed up. They said, this is not great for us. And you've been riding with us since 2020, understanding that you got to hit them in every piece because they're going to keep trying to recriminalize in every piece of legislation they possibly can, unfortunately. That's true. And you know what? We can't wait until the damage is done and then go and try to undo it. Let's keep it from happening in the first place. Because if we fight with all of our might now and they still do it, and we already know what the consequences will be, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want you to say, I never knew. I didn't see that this would could possibly be. Right. We won't be willing to hear that. That's we right. will not hear you. That's right. We That's will. Right. Mm. And we've got it archived and we'll continue to have Rise for Youth and Valerie Slater on the show. How can folks continue to follow and support you all's work? Please, please, please go to our website, riseforyouth.org. Sign up to get our updates, our alerts, our newsletter. And also follow us on social media, Rise for Youth, at Rise for Youth on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. Um, And, you know, if you feel so inclined, we are always willing to accept donations, whether it be uh, monetary, whether it be your time you want to volunteer, or whether you want to uh, speak up, talk to legislators and let them know that you support the things that we support. Our legislative agenda is on our website, so you'll be able to view it there. But please stand up for the kids. If we don't, who will? That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Valerie Slater. Kudos to your entire team, all the youth there. And we will continue to follow the work. And I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Thanks so much, Val. Chelsea, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. As we fight for the change in the laws, it's important to keep the stories of our comrades close. Up next, you'll hear two stories from people who have faced these racist policing enforcements head on. Mike Thomas is a Chesterfield man who's faced not one, but two cases of marijuana possession. But first, we hear from Asia, who was a VCU student at the time of her arrest. 
Those stories carry the weight of not only their truths, but their trauma, our trauma. Race Capital is grateful to air these stories with care and compassion. You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio, and this is Reefer Revolution Part 2. Stay tuned. Being pulled over by the police as a black woman in America is a triggering situation, no matter the circumstances. Anytime I see those red and blue lights, my anxiety increases and I'm terrified. Every time I think about interacting with the police during a traffic stop, I think about Sandra Bland and how her story shook me to my core. I never really had a good relationship with the police. When my mother was abused by my stepfather on multiple occasions, they did nothing. And when I was abused, they did nothing. My childhood involved me visiting my favorite uncle in prison often, and at the big age of 28 years old, he's still there. Born and raised in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I am very familiar with how the police behave here. I have to say, I'm not a fan of being pulled over. I don't think anybody is, actually. I always feel like traffic stops and violations are racially charged. One night while leaving Cabell Library, I was pulled over by VCU police for a taillight that was out. Quotation marks. Both officers got out of the car and one officer was walking around, shining the, car, shining the light into my car and on my windows while officer two was taking my information and asking me, do you have any weapons in the car? Have you been drinking? And of course, the answer to those questions were no, considering the fact that I just left Cabell Library. But anyway, officer one told me my taillight was out and that I needed to get it fixed. I rushed home to ask my roommate, to fix my taillight because I do not want to deal with being pulled over again. I suffer from extreme anxiety and depression. So again, like I said before, when I interact with the police, my anxiety increases. I want to avoid that. My roommate goes out to my car to check on my taillight so he can fix it. He's like, your taillight isn't out. And I didn't believe him at first. And then I went and looked at the back of my car and it was true. All of my lights were working, not one of them was out. I still don't really know why I was pulled. I shared that story first because that was my first time being pulled over for a tail light and lied to about it. My second time I ended up getting a marijuana possession charge. Last spring I graduated from VCU with my bachelor's degree in history. My final sem- sem- semester I received my very first marijuana charge. I was pulled over in Henrico County on my way home. After the traditional license and registration please, rhetoric the officer says you know why i pulled you over i honestly did not so she told me my taillight was out but then i remember last time and i'm like are you sure she says yes and then here comes the classic line when pulling over black and brown folk it smells like marijuana have you been smoking tonight i replied "Mm, i was just at a friend's house and there was smoke in the air so maybe that's why that's partially true. I mean, I hit the blunt like once. That's none of her business. But anyway, she then asked if she can search my car. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's necessary. And she keeps pushing the issue. I was alone and I was afraid. I know what cops do. And I know that they are never here to protect anyone. And I know that being alone, anything can happen. It is my word against theirs. Officer seems to be getting frustrated with me because I would like to not have my car searched. The intimidation makes me cave, and so they search my car. 
the officers found less than $30 worth of weed in a small bag. I have a sticker on my car that says, abuse of power comes as no surprise. Once I noticed that she noticed the sticker, she became more aggressive with me. She then makes me get out of the car and makes me take a DUI test. I would like to add that her partner was actually trying to convince her to let me go and just move on with my night, which I never experienced with a cop ever in my life. Um, That's only happened to my white friends, but he was fed up too because why was she doing all of this? She said I failed and I'm under the influence of marijuana. And she's like, you know, I can really take you to jail right now for being under the influence, but I'm just going to charge you with possession. And that was a huge deal for someone like me. I'm a first-generation college student. I worked my ass off to even get my foot in the door at college. Ninth grade me didn't even think I would get the chance to go. I didn't come for money. I never thought I was smart. <laughs> but, you know, you, you live and you learn. No one in my family could, have, could even help me purchase any books for school. I had to work and do it all by myself while also sending money back home to help my grandma out a bit. I depended on financial aid and knew that a drug possession charge could potentially interfere with the amount of aid I received and my aid could be taken away under those circumstances. I felt like everything that I worked so hard for was going to be taken away from me in a second. I paid $700 for a lawyer to go to court. While going through all this legal stuff, I accepted two internships that would bring me to Los Angeles, California. I worried that my day in court would interfere with the internship and my post-graduation plans. The judge wanted to suspend my license and make me take ASVAB classes for 6 to 12 months, and then the charges would be dropped. 6 to 12 months would keep me in Virginia, and that meant I would have to turn down my internships. I caught the charge in January and would not have to show up in court till the end of April, which is right around the time when finals are happening. I couldn't take the overwhelming stress. I should have fought harder, but I really didn't know what to do. I felt hopeless. I was scared and did not want the charges to interfere with all that I had going on. I did not want the charges to interfere with the future that I worked so hard to get. My lawyer does a deal with the judge so that he doesn't stick me with charges that would interfere with my internships out of state and my financial aid. My lawyer suggested that my charges be dropped from possession to paraphernalia so that the misdemeanor would not interfere with my financial aid as much. Why do I smoke marijuana? It helps with my depression and anxiety. Life isn't all shits and giggles, and I've had some pretty rough experiences, and weed helps me cope. While at VCU, I was considered a post-traditional student because I worked full-time while taking classes full-time, while also taking care of the family back home when I could. My very first year starting at VCU, 2016, I was my dad's caregiver while he was receiving his bone marrow transplant and treatment at MCV. I always had a lot going on between school, work, and family. College can be extremely overwhelming, and my time at VCU was very overwhelming because I had a lot going on. I always learned from my experiences. My family always rants and raves about my degree and accomplishments, and of course, they should be proud, but they also believe in that American dream thing. You know, the saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, work hard, go to college, get a degree, you'll be okay. I'm actually so glad I evolved out of that way of thinking. I'm glad I learned as a black woman in America that having that degree still won't save you from the systematic injustices we have to face on a daily basis. Hi, my name is Daylee Michael Thomas. I am a 36-year-old 
African-American male, born and raised in Chesterfield, Virginia, uh, what is now North Chesterfield, Virginia. I had my first run-in with the police um, due to marijuana um, at the age of about 15 or 16, riding in the car with a friend of mine um, in Chesterfield County. We were pulled over, and of course, the officer smells marijuana. Um, at that time, you know, of course, all of us are pulled out of the car. We're, um, we're searched. We're sat on the curb. A couple of officers arrived on scene, you know, spotlights all in our face, and uh, sort of gone through the whole rigmarole row of just being searched and labeled as uh you know, a criminal being that we may have used marijuana. Eventually, later in life, uh, my first arrest was due to possession of marijuana. A very small amount, under a quarter of an ounce, uh, which at that time, uh, I believe there was a day or two spent in jail, uh, additional fines and things of that nature due to the minimal amount that was found um, several several years later in the North Chesterfield area. I was, again, later um, arrested for possession of marijuana, which then led to my incarceration, being that I had already had a previous arrest for it. Um, that incarceration was for about... 60 to 90 days uh i was offered some some sort of drug program rehabilitation program where i was forced to arrive at this program every day uh take breathalyzers take a urine analysis screen um the the program also required that you have a job and of course this is after being released from you know the time spent in jail due to the drug charge for the marijuana and of course you know you have to have a job in order to complete this program and you have to show up there every day and also to your employment which of course at that time in Virginia when you do get a marijuana charge your license is suspended which made the completion of the program in my eyes, impossible. Um, long story short, I was not able to complete the program. Uh, I was in a program with people who used harder drugs, like, uh, you know, I don't want to mention those, but just, you know, harder drugs, and it just felt that I didn't belong there due to using marijuana. And that, again, that program I was not able to complete in which I basically went back in front of the judge and asked him to put me back in jail and let me just do my time because the program that was set up for me was set up for me to fail. And I went back to jail and did the rest of my time just due to the fact that the program was impossible to complete. Um, Hopefully, the laws here in Virginia will change to help people like me who have been impacted and incarcerated and fined and had to lose things due to a drug that it will soon be legal and is legal in a lot of other states. Looking back over my false dreams that I once knew, 
I'm black uh-huh. Somebody tell me What can I do Oh Lord Oh Something is holding me back uh-huh. Is it because I'm black Yeah Wow Those were some powerful stories Yeah it's hard every time I hear them, no matter how many times I've heard Mike or Asia tell these stories, they still hit. And I'm wondering, can you tell us what's next in the fight to legalize it right in Virginia? The way that you can follow legalization in Virginia for the next week or so is to continue to follow THC Justice Now on social media on Monday, February 22nd. There is going to be a press conference held by Rise for Youth, Marijuana Justice, ACLU, Justice for Virginia, really emphasizing these crimes on youth and how if these crimes exist in the legislation, then this is not truly a legalization bill. So keep a lookout for that press conference on Monday. Every Saturday, we are holding Canna Hour. That will happen again this Saturday with Suli Stinson Clay. They are a a cannabis lawyer out of Maryland. And then you can keep an eye out for when the bills come out of conference. What is conference? Well, conference is that a secret negotiation spot where two Democrats and a Republican from the House and from the Senate get together and they make the two bills match. It's a very secret process and we just have to wait and see what comes out. And you can find out what comes out of conference by continuing to follow Marijuana Justice on THC Justice Now on all social media platforms because we will need everyone's voices to come out to say, hey, what do we actually need in this bill? Because the step after conference is going to the governor's desk and there's no guarantee that he will sign it. He'll probably send it back with more amendments and we're going to have to keep fighting. So keep following y'all. And Chelsea, a lot of people are really excited because, you know, these bills are being passed, but you and I both know that bills like this have been passed in other states and they've still legislated violence against black and brown people. So can you just speak a little bit further to the work that still needs to be done to redress racism when it comes to marijuana legalization? You're exactly right, Nomi, because the quote unquote decriminalization laws that passed have not actually done anything for racial disparities. According to the data from the Office of the Executive Secretary of the Supreme Court of Virginia, Black Virginians experienced 52% of all marijuana possession charges since this decriminalization was implemented this past July. And reminder, Black people only account for 20% of the population. That means that Black Virginians are still feeling the marijuana possession rate four times higher than white Virginians since July, y'all. So we got these new numbers and we have to remember that if you are excited about legalization or you're excited about access, remember that this is about racial justice. And if you are white, then you have a different job besides just champion legalization and getting excited. Your job is actually articulated very well from friend to the show, Mary Pryor. All we want white people to start doing on top of like being in these conversations is to start calling it out. Because when we do it, we just look like, oh, 
there they go being black and angry. When a white person calls a white person out, it's taken way more seriously because they feel offended and hurt. I need you to be that person, Shannon, because at this point, they just already expect us to come with our issues because they don't think that white supremacy is real. Most white people, I, I assume, based upon how 2020 went, are somewhat potentially aware that there's a great distance, a great difference as between how black people are treated and white people are treated. If you really want to even go any deeper, I'm pretty sure that all those people that were at the Capitol on the 6th are now at home with their ankle bracelets on and their ankle monitors and not going to see any jail time. So I just want you to understand, Shannon, that if you can support black and brown folks by just being someone that says, this sounds like white supremacy. Actually, here's a point as to why this person needs to be amplified with what they're saying. You're doing not only more, but I need you to find other white folks to do that and to come into these conversations so that it's not just 10 people that are talking about this, it's 40, it's 50. Because at this point, numbers and physical appearance matter and they expect black people to be discontented with the face of talking about how we feel with white supremacy. We need white folks to acknowledge this with other white people in the room in front of us now more than ever. That's right. That's what you got to do, white folks. It is your job to call out white supremacy. We will be counting on you to do that work so that we can continue to organize and set ourselves free. Woo, y'all. And I think that's it for this week on Race Capital. Be sure to check us out every Wednesday on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm gonna break this chain off the run. I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady. Lord, I sure am hard in the sun. Hold it right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been broken. Still God so tell